are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 495. Today is a Wednesday, and we are going to talk about prepping in an urban and suburban environment. Um, there's a lot of things that won't be in today's show, specifically how to store food and things like that, because all the shows I've done on that, and we'll do that on, on that in the future with methodologies for food storage and water storage and all, they all apply. I mean, you can a, a, a green bean the same way in Chicago, Illinois, as you can a green bean in the middle of the mountains in Idaho. You put away your mountain house food or things like that the same way in Jacksonville, Florida, as you do in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains in Montana. A lot of the things that we do is exactly the same. Important, though, is how we think about things, how we assess things, how we examine things, what we prepare for, what we expect to happen. If you live in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains and something happens that you know, is really nationwide in scope or global in scope, bugging out's probably not a big, a good idea for you. It may not be a good idea for you in the cities. Definitely probably not a good idea out in the middle routes. Why? You're probably about as remote as you can get. So there's certain differences based on geography that we need to talk about. And we're going to talk about a lot of those things. It's really a continuation of yesterday's show. Yesterday I talked about suburban and urban homesteading, more of just the homesteading stuff. So today this will kind of complete a little mini-series, a little two-part series on that. Before we do that, though, let's uh, take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here. Sponsor of the day number one, Common Sense Prep. What will you find at Common Sense Prep? You'll find all the things for prepping that make common sense. Uh, no tinfoil hattery, just the things that you need to put your life in order to deal with disasters from the mundane to the insane. Um, sponsor of the day number two today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals offers uh, a complete line of herbal preparations and supplements and raw herbs as well, along with the information that you need to turn those raw herbs into your own custom-made preparations. Their belief is that there should be an herbalist in every house in America. That herbalist is you. You should learn how to use the plants that are around you to heal yourself so you don't become completely dependent upon them or any other system of support. Next up, check out the gear shop. We have a lot of new stuff in the gear shop. I'd say most of the new stuff is on our Zazzle store now. You can get there through our main site. The Zazzle stuff does cost a little bit more, but it lets us answer questions like, can I have a green one? Can I get mine an extra small or extra, extra, extra large? Can I get this uh, design on this mug or, or things like that? That We just cannot inventory enough stuff for you guys. It lets you custom make things. Check out some of the shirts, and what you'll see is when you click through the Zazzle store, if you're looking at a shirt and it's blue and you want it in green, you can just click a little button and change it to green. Custom make your own stuff with Survival Podcast Affinity on it. And we have a lot of other cool stuff coming to the shop soon, so check that out. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. 
20 videos that are available nowhere else, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. Um, I also want to point out real quick, both of our sponsors I mentioned today do have specials in the MSB. Western Botanicals has a preferred membership. That's 50 bucks a year if you buy it. Uh, it lets you buy everything in the Western Botanicals store for 25% off. You get that free if you're an MSB member. So that, that pays for it in of itself. And uh, Common Sense Prep has an amazing assortment of uh, paddle and paddle... <laughs> hey, folks, even I screw up once in a while. The word I'm trying to say there is paddle and press books. And uh, they have some really cool books on homesteading and prepping and identity changing and all kinds of cool stuff. Well, if you're an MSB member, you get 15% off all of those books. And there are really some pretty cool titles in there to check out. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and get into the main topic today, which again is suburban slash urban Homestead uh, uh, prepping again. Continuing on with uh, our show yesterday that we did on suburban and urban homesteading. What we really have to do though is we have to realize something. I get a lot of requests to do this show. That's why I'm going to do it. But as I said in the intro, a lot of the things that you do to prep in Chicago or Jacksonville or Tallahassee or Atlanta or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Philadelphia or pick your big city, are the same things that you do no matter where you're at. What changes is the threat dynamics and how we prepare for an eventual breakdown. If I'm living in a kind of semi-rural area, a little bit away from a small town, but I'm still where I can get to modern conveniences and all, the possibility of, of seeing you know a, a street gang or what have you during a breakdown goes down a lot. Now, there's still a potential for people that don't have things kind of packing together and going to take away from people that do have things. But one, it's a little bit easier to defend if I have greater line of sight. I can see the threat coming. Two, it's a lot less likely out in the country because people expect that you will be armed. And three, there's just less population density, so there's less fighting for available resources. As we move way out, well, you know, there's any criminal, whether one by trade or by circumstance, maybe somebody that wouldn't be doing this if uh, if society was in a normal state, any criminal looks at life with a risk-reward ratio. And if I have to travel 20 miles to get to the next place that I might be able to steal something from, eh, it's not really worth my effort. That's what it comes down to. It's not that they can't get to you. It's that are you worth their effort when you can go rape and pillage cities and towns where there's a high density of people and therefore a high density of resources and that outlying stuff you know, has to be a very long-term disaster for that really to come under pressure and threat as resources really would become scarce. So there's a difference there. If you live out in the open, you don't have you know, 10 neighbors you can see out of one window. And that density is part of the problem. But what it really comes down to, and what we always have to do when it comes to survivalism and are preparing, is realize that as human beings, we have five primary needs. They are water, food, shelter, security, and fire. And fire, I actually don't just... That, that's a kind of an old school list. Uh, water, food, shelter, fire, security. I actually call fire energy. Because it's not the fire that you want. It's the energy the fire produces. If we think about what fire does for us, it provides us illumination. 
Well, we can also do that with a flashlight, a solar backup system, uh, something jerry-rigged off of car headlights. It's an energy uh, function. It provides us warmth. Again, we can do this with other forms of energy. Fire is probably the most efficient in a disaster, but it's still the energy, the heat radiation that we're looking for. It can provide us with the ability to cook, okay? And again, that's an energy function. It's about heat. So if we have an electric stove, again, in a disaster, but it's important that we, we understand that what we really want from the fire is the energy. Because then when we're in a situation where we can't use fire, we can figure out what other source of energy might provide the same functionality and security. I just did a, a show recently on security. It probably dovetails, dovetails very well with this one. Here's the thing about water. You can survive for about three days without water. Well, that's about it. And some people can't. There's a lot of people that would be dead in a day with no water. And in certain situations, most people would be dead in a day. When you say three days without water, it's... Uh, Best case scenario. Food, they say three weeks, people have gone longer. In a bad situation, you might be dead in three hours or less without shelter. Okay, uh, If it's hot enough or cold enough. But shelter, you know, is easy to improvise. Fire, it all depends on the situation, how long you can do without fire. Security is a big one, though. Because security is something... That if everything just works out, you can survive your entire life without it. There are people that walk through their lives completely situationally unaware. They don't think anybody will ever hurt them. They don't think anybody will ever do them harm in business, life in general, in any way, shape, or form. Everybody's nice. They are the perfect victim. And yet, because of karma or circumstance or what have you, it almost seems like they have a little golden bubble around them. And sometimes it's a lot of people that really admire them for that to kind of protect them. So they also have good friends around them to protect them. But they walk through life with no worries and no security, no concept of defense. There's people that don't lock their doors, they don't lock their windows. They'll walk down a dark street with no concern, and somehow they live to be a ripe old age of 90-something, and then they die in their sleep, and they go off to wherever we go when we die, whatever you believe, and nothing happens. And that can create a false sense of security. The fact that we do without it so often, and it could go years, days, months, something anywhere in between without it, without any need for it whatsoever, at least any perceived need. But here's the reality. You know how long you can live without security when you need it? Less than a second. It takes less than a second for someone to slit your throat or shoot you or club you with a bat. Less than a second. So it is the one need that we don't know how long we can do without it. So I had a, a firearms instructor one time email me and say that you can only do without the security for three seconds. That's what he teaches people in his you know, concealed carry. And I thought that, that's actually a very dangerous way to look at it. Because the person says, well, I've gone without security my entire life. Security is the one we never know how long we have before we, we, we can't do without it. But when we get to the point that we can't, not only is he right with three seconds, he's underestimating. He's just trying to fit the rules of three so people remember it, right? Less than a, less than a second. Less than a second to be dead or injured beyond repair. Less than a second for a virus to enter your system and eventually kill you. Less than a second to lose your freedom 
by making a stupid decision. Less than a second to lose the food that would sustain you by making a stupid choice. And the reason I'm harping on security so much is it's the one that is more important probably in the city than in the country. You are more likely to come in, in, in you know, to encounter that one second of necessity if there's thousands of people around you versus a couple dozen. When there's a couple dozen people around, you know what people tend to do in a disaster? They group up. They pull together. They share what resources they're willing to share. They keep some to themselves. But basically, they come together. The bigger the crowd gets, the greater the level of distrust, the greater the panic, the greater the fear, the more mouths to feed, the greater the potential for the real disaster. Because as I've said before in this show, it is not the disaster that's really dangerous. Storm comes through and starts ripping roofs off of houses. It kills people. It injures people. Damages property. But in, in reality, its timeline is a short duration timeline. Big hurricane might move through an area and do all of its major damage in several hours. And then maybe there's some aftermath with some flooding that's several days. But without someone coming in to restore order, you can have civil breakdown that lasts several months. And you're just as dead if somebody clubs you with a bat to take the few things you've managed to scavenge for yourself as you are if when a hurricane comes through you get hit in the head with an oak tree. Death does not come in degrees. If you take away one thing from today, I want you to take that away. And I know this is another time where I'm getting a little bit dark, but hey, once in a while, if we're going to talk about things that threaten our lives, we have to be open to the reality that there are some real threats out there. And your fellow man can become a threat. So security is absolutely paramount in any survival situation. But it's even more so when you're in a high-density populated area. And I want to really drive home how important security is. You would think that, let's say you were in a wilderness survival situation. You got lost. you know, And you and a buddy are out there trying to get somebody to find you. Well, you'd think security is not really that important, right? I mean, you want to be found. You're out there lighting fires so people can find you. You know, maybe if you're on a beach, you're, you're creating a big sign that says help. Flashing an SOS every, you're doing everything you can to get found. The last thing you would want to do is repel somebody. Really? What about a bear? Mountain lion? Pack of feral dogs. Dogs, not hogs. Dogs. You know, I mean, dogs get together, feral dogs get together, they act like a wolf pack. Dangerous. You're out in the middle of nowhere. What about someone that would do you harm? Someone you think you found to help you and it turns out to be someone that takes advantage of your bad luck. Security is always important. Just the more people that are around, the more important it becomes. As a suburban or urban prepper, there are four big things that you need to do a threat assessment based on. The first one is kind of the most mundane one uh, in, 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 in most people's eyes. And it's something that people spend the least amount of time thinking about, but it's the most likely to cause a problem. And that's what I call life position. You might think that's about money. No, money's the next one. That's financial position. Life position is things like, well, how old are you? How old are you? I mean, if you're 19 and in great shape and living on your own, that's one thing. 
If you're 42 and have a slightly bad back and two children, that's completely different, isn't it? It's so easy for some people to get into forums and to chat thread discussions and stuff on this subject to talk about how badass they are and they're going to go and they're going to fight if there's ever a battle like this that we, we talk about on occasion and no matter what happens, they're prepared for it. They're a mountain biker and a hiker and they can pack for miles and yeah, do that with a 12 year old, buddy. 12 year old little girl. Do that with a one year old infant. Do that with your wife that doesn't share your passion for outdoor sports. And most of the people that talk that way don't have those things. And it's so easy for them to not realize that it's not just about what the physical shape that you're in is all about, but what the mental shape and physical shape of all the people that you care about and love is in. It's easy when you're a loner. Not as easy to survive, though, but it's easy to think that way. We have to think about our position in life. There's other things that, that fall around life position. Do you have any medical problems, disabilities? What about age? How old will you be when the problem occurs? You know, 30-something, mountain biker, you know, uh, fitness uh, guy, guru. What if the disaster happens in 20 years when you're 55 and despite your best efforts, some type of chronic illness comes into your life that takes away that prime physical health that you have? Life position is so important. Life position is not just about you. It's about those around you, those you care about, those that you love. It's about your community. If you don't care about the place you live, if you could give a damn if the people around you go to hell, that's one thing. Most people are human and are in touch with their humanity, right? And they actually, you know, the reason they choose to live somewhere, even though they might prefer somewhere else better, is there's certain redeeming qualities about the place that they choose to live. You know, there's a reason they don't live somewhere else that they could live. They made the best of what choices they had available to them, and that means that they do give a damn about the place around them. All of these things are part of your life position, and you don't want to wait until there's a critical disaster to assess this, because you'll find yourself in that disaster torn. Do I do this or do I do that? Do I help this person or do I help that per person? Do I stay or do I go? Because if the first time you have to assess limitations and strength is when you're under extreme stress, and a bad decision could mean death, disaster, disability, injury, loss of a loved one, giving up on a place you actually care about and didn't realize you cared about it until you had to make the choice, if the first time you have to do that is under stress, you won't make the right decisions. Or if you do, it'll be the same as, well, you had six decisions to make and you, you, roll, you rolled a dice And it came up three, and three just happened to be right. You won't think clearly. So you have to assess everything around your life position, especially when you're in a place like the suburbs, where you're going to have to someday make a choice. Do I stay here? Do I defend what I have? Do I try to hold it together? Do I try to be part of this community? Or is the disaster too great, and do I get the hell out of here? Much different of a choice when you're in a farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. I'm not saying one's better than the other, just the choices are different. The next one, you do have to assess your financial position. We have to accept something, folks, that all the Hollywood disasters we hear about are the least probable. You know, the Mayans being right about 2012 and the earth cracking in half, or whatever nonsense they come up with next. Even the most likely of the big disasters, like a pandemic, has a lot of things holding it back and working against it. 
an economic collapse. To me, an economic collapse is, is one of those, it's not if, it's when. Because the way we run our economy, it has to happen. But it doesn't have to happen the way that it's always sensationalized by people that want to sell you stuff. You have to ask yourself, if, if the dollar is going to be so worthless, then why is the person telling me that want my dollars? Why is the gold salesman that says, dude, dude, oh, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Give me some dollars and I'll give you some gold. If they really believe what they're saying, why do they want my dollars? Since they already have the gold they're selling me, why don't they just keep it? Because there's a reality that until you get to the absolute end of an economy, the total desolation of economy, um, that money has value in that economy. Ask a person that, that went through it in Argentina. Was there hyperinflation? Was their money devalued? Absolutely. Was anybody burning money to stay warm? Absolutely not. The more you had, the better off you were. Finances matter. And a lot of the disasters that could occur that are not the Hollywood sensationalized disasters have a lot of things that can be done to mitigate them if you have money, which means if you don't, you're at greater risk. I'm not saying the guy with money is better than the guy without money, or vice versa. right? I, I, I think that we live in a society where once a person has too much, we tend to look down at them. And once a person has too little, we tend to look down on them. And do you know where we figure that number based on? What we have. And that's arrogance in our society. That's also projection in our society. I already recorded Friday's show. Tune in, you're going to hear a lot about projection onto others in, in Friday's show. But here's what I mean. The guy that makes about $50,000 a year, married to a wife that makes about $30,000 a year, he thinks a household income of $80,000 ain't that bad, it ain't that good, it just is. If his neighbor makes a hundred or hundred and twenty, he's probably cool with his neighbor. Maybe his neighbor's house has one more bedroom, but they basically live in the same area. Now he drives over to a, a neighborhood where the people that live there are mostly renters, and it's kind of an older, torn-down neighborhood, and there's some junk cars parked in the yard, and these people maybe have a household income of $20,000, and they're just getting by, and uh, maybe there's a little bit more crime in that area. He tends to look down at those. Those are the poor people that are taking his tax dollars. Then he drives over to the other side of town, right, where the average household income, let's say, is about $200,000. And he sees another guy's house, and the guy has a couple nice cars in the yard, much bigger yard, much bigger house, big pool in the backyard, kids are running around. You know what he thinks? That guy doesn't work for a living. He's living off of my efforts. Here's the funny thing. You take the guy that makes $200,000 a year household income, you take him down to... A little bit below the, the, the $80,000 income household, somewhere in between those two extremes, he starts to feel like, hey, these are the people that are on food stamps living off my work. And you take him to the place where the people make a million dollars a year, and he looks at them the way the guy that makes 80 looks at him. We do that all the time with financial positioning. We look at other people and we make a determination that because they have more or they have less, Somehow, I'm better than they are. When you evaluate your financial position, you can't do that. Easiest way I can explain this, if you ever notice that when you're driving down the highway, everybody else is either a maniac going too fast or an idiot going too slow. Have you ever noticed that? Your speed's right. Anybody that flies past you is too fast. Anybody not moving at least as fast as you are is too slow. That's the way we assess life, and we cannot do that when we're making a personal assessment like this. We can't worry about what someone else has or does not have. 
Okay. That said, you also have to look at your geography, and if there is a bad neighborhood near you, it is a threat. Because geography is the next assessment. But geography is bigger than that. Geography is, <clears throat> hey, if you live in the southeastern United States, you have a legitimate threat, especially closer to the coast you are, uh, to hurricane. Hurricanes hit somewhere in the southeastern United coastline every year. Sometimes there's one or two big ones. Sometimes there's one or two little ones that really don't do that much damage. Sometimes there's a buttload of them. Sometimes we have a, a horror where we have back-to-back -back storms like Rita and Katrina. Um, but it's a threat. If you live in Montana and you are concerned with hurricane, you need a psychologist because it's just not a threat where you're at. If you live in Miami, Florida, and you're worried about being prepared for massive blizzards, not blizzard, but blizzards, you know, there's snow, snow can happen anywhere, right? But if you're worried, really prepping for a blizzard in Miami, you need a psychologist. If you are in Montana prepping for a blizzard, you are a smart person because you are both assessing your geographic specific risks. If you're really worried about a volcano in Austin, Texas, I'd like to sell you some volcano insurance. Please email me and let me know. I'll sell you a great policy on volcano. I'll self-insure it for you, all right? I'll, if it ever happens, I'll cover your loss, right? If you live in Washington State near the coastline and you're concerned about volcanic events, damn well should be, right? If you live anywhere and you're concerned about the effects of volcanic ash, on the economy and the global climate, well, that makes sense. But you see what I'm saying? There are specific things to your geography that are both large regional specific things, southeast hurricane threats, and then there's more specific things. Do you live close to a nuclear plant? Do you live close to a large city that would be a high target for terrorist activity? Unfortunately for me, right now anyway, until January, I do. When you look at a list of the top 10 cities that terrorists would want to attack, Dallas and Houston are usually on it. Along with Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, and Atlanta. Those cities always seem to pop up on the list that a terrorist would want to take out. San Francisco generally makes that list as well. You're anywhere around those cities or similar sized cities you have an enhanced risk to terrorist action. Does that mean that, you know, someday a terrorist won't decide to take some kind of an action in small-town America because it also creates a different type of fear? No, but it does mean that a big attack, a biochemical attack, a suitcase nuke attack, all of those types of things from terrorist activity is a hell of a lot more likely in Dallas than in Dalhart. Alright, and if you guys know where Dalhart is, it's up in the panhandle. It's usually the coldest place in Texas, right? Up there, you know, you're damn near to uh, Colorado at that point. I think sometimes people forget Texas is that big a place. But you get my point. You have to make your geographic assessment as well. That is, is there military installations around you? Sometimes you might be out in the middle of nowhere, but if you're where the nuclear silos are, well, you know... I'm not saying that it's the same threat that it was in 1984, but we were all sure it was going to happen, and we had drills in school where we hid under our desks like that was going to help us, but it's still a threat. You have to make that assessment. The other thing you have to do, and this is something that this audience struggles with sometimes, I know, because when I talk about it, sometimes there's pushback, and that's current events. 
You do have to pay attention to politics. You do have to pay attention to financial news. You do have to pay attention to the news that's going on out there, you know, around the World World Health Organization, because as incompetent as they can be, they know more than most of us do about what's actually out there and what actually could threaten us. Um, you have to pay attention, because your risk changes based on what's going on in the world. You know, and if you if you doubt that, I want you to think back to the swine flu nonsense, right? But I want you to think back before we knew it was nonsense when it first came to a head. I want you to think back to you know when you first heard about this thing and you first looked into it, and every government official was saying we don't know yet. And I want you to think about that little sinking pit feeling you got in your stomach, and you thought, oh hell. Have I done enough yet? Am I ready for this? This could be it. And you probably felt that more than the average person because you're at least in touch with the need to be prepared. So you know how bad things can get. You've run the scenario in your mind and you feel that way. Well, the day before that, it probably wasn't as big an issue, was it? And as soon as you found out that, hey, these guys are lying, this is just a freaking flu, it's nothing but a scam so the vaccine companies can make lots of money, and politicians are just running their mouths because they like to run their mouths, and we just need to go on with our lives and get back to doing the things that we do to be prepared for anything, that feeling in your stomach went away. That is life telling you current events are important. Uh, the other thing you need to do, though, is you need to assess your most dangerous human proximity threats. That's the big one in suburban and urban survival. One of the big things you need to look at is what's the population density of the neighborhood that you live in and the surrounding neighborhoods. The greater the density, the greater the requirements are, and the quicker you'll have breakdown. And I know that it seems oversimplified, but it's not. Here's what I mean. If you have... Small town environment, couple thousand people living in a town. You'd be amazed at how long a couple thousand people can make do with what they have and what's around them and what's available, scrape and salvage and skimp and pull together. If you have a neighborhood with a couple thousand people in it, inside of a city with a couple hundred thousand people in it, as soon as the resources dry up, what is available gets scalvened, scraped, hidden, consumed, and destroyed. And now we have more hungry people with less resources, and then we have greater conflict. So you have to assess the population density of your neighborhood. And in a true breakdown, the greater the density, probably the quicker you need to be on pulling the trigger and deciding, even though it's not optimum, I'm getting the hell out of here. I know that I tell you guys that in most situations... You need to, you know, bug in. And I do believe that. I believe that in most disasters, bugging in is the way to go. In a disaster that you can look to the future, though, and see, this is gonna, this is gonna take all the food off the grocery stores. And not for two weeks, maybe two months or longer. If you're in one of these areas, you have, and here's the big one. You need to know where the hell you're gonna go, and you need to figure that out now. And I know not everybody can buy a bug out location. And even just having a place to go is not enough. You have to have resources available to you when you get there. This is the place for groups, for people getting together. Even though I talk against that sometimes, I want to be clear about this group thing again. What I talk against is Tom and Bob, who are actually buddies at work, that both discover they're preppers, going out and buying some piece of land somewhere and trying to turn it into a survivalist retreat, where each of them owns 50% of the land, and they share everything. 
The reason I'm against that isn't because it's not a good idea in a disaster. The reason I'm against it is because in real life it ruins Bob and Tom's relationship. If Bob and Tom want to do that, great. Split the land in half. Bob takes 50%, Tom takes 50%. That way they can afford more land and they know who their neighbors are. And Bob and Tom have an agreement that if Tom sells, Bob gets a chance to buy before Tom sells to a third party. And both of them run their own shit on those two pieces of land. So Bob's never mad that Tom invested in something instead of the solar that he wanted to invest in. Right? It's maybe a good idea to keep an eye on what each other's doing, share information, you're doing this. I'm going to do completely the opposite. So that if we do end up in that situation, we can pull together. But in peacetime, we run our own show. That's what I mean when I say the survival group thing I'm not a big fan of. Knowing who you're going to work with, where you're going to rally at, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think it's a great idea. Those are two different things. But you've got to have some plan to get out. Everybody everywhere that listens to this show Needs a plan to get out. You say, well, if everybody got out, wouldn't you stay put? Well, there's 330 million people in the United States. 14,000 of you listen to this show. Plenty of room for the 14,000 of you to get the hell out. And you can leave the other 229,984,000 behind. You know, whatever, 984,000. Yeah, 229,984,000 could stay put, right? wherever they are. You need a plan to get out. I'm not saying it's a plan that you're going to want to jump on right away, but you've got to have the plan because it could be necessary. You also have to look at the demographics of your neighborhood. In spite of what I said earlier, I'm like, you know, we shouldn't be looking down at somebody because they make less than us. If it's you know far enough less than us, then they look like the poor person that's taking our tax dollars. We shouldn't look down at the rich person because they probably worked their ass off for what they had. When it comes down to it, there is a level that a neighborhood decays to where it's a bigger threat. If it's less likely that you would walk through your neighborhood than somebody else's neighborhood during peacetime, then during conflict, it's even worse. And there are places in this... I remember when I first went to Panama, and we were in Panama City, and a lot of the kind of country boys, you know, were like a little bit afraid of some of the... And the, the, the mainstream places, not the dark places, the mainstream places in Panama City... And um, as I'm standing there talking to one guy, and I kind of grew up both, you know. I grew up some in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a big city and has some really bad, bad places in it, and uh, out in the country in Pennsylvania. And and my comment was always, hey, man, I've been in places in Jacksonville, Florida that are far more dangerous than this. It's not dangerous just because it's another country. But we might make a turn to go down an alley and, oh, no, no, we're not going down there, right? And, and there is that level of decay of a neighborhood. And if you live in that area because you're stuck with it, or you live close to it, because and sometimes it happens around you. I used to do underground construction work uh, back in the 90s, early 90s, kind of my first entry into telecommunications. And we would work in neighborhoods with houses, and you'd look at them and go, man, that's three, dollars $400,000 houses in this neighborhood. And for those of you that live in, like, Connecticut or Massachusetts, you have to understand what a $300,000 house is in Dallas, Texas versus Connecticut. And what a $300,000 house in 1994 was. I mean, we're talking big McMansions, right? Beautiful houses. 
And we'd be working there and say, you know, we feel pretty safe with our equipment here, with our guys here, and we're just putting cable in, right? And we put all the cable in and tie everything together, and splicers come in, and this is back when the fiber optic boom was happening, and we're dragging all this fiber in so people have high-speed internet and increasing the channel lineups and everything for, for the cable uh, cable company that was down here at the time, Marcus Cable. We make a turn, we go around, we go over two streets, we start coming down another, uh, another uh, backyard easement, And there's pit bulls and Rottweilers and there's drug guys hanging out in the street. And we've moved two blocks west or two blocks east. And there's a lot of places like that in America. And I don't know if they build the nice houses adjacent or if the, the area around there's not that bad and decays, but it's all over the place. And trust me, those people know where you are. And I'm not putting them down for their station in life. I'm just telling you that in those areas there is more crime which means there's a greater disposition for crime, which means in a stressful situation in removing law enforcement, the first place they're going to go is two to three blocks over to take from the people they've always seen as the haves when they consider themselves the have-nots. And if there's drug activity, they're armed. And I'm not saying that means you move tomorrow or even next year. I'm not even saying that you don't become involved with your community and try to help restore that area. And a lot of investors have done things like that. They've gone into these areas that are adjacent to these nice areas and brought them up. But it does mean you're aware of it and you're aware of the threat. Make sure you're paying attention on that assessment of the demographics of your neighborhood and the surrounding area. That's the, and that's also an assessment of your closest high crime areas. Where is crime the worst around you right now when everything's super? Because that is a threat when everything gets bad. That is, it will be like a cancer and it will begin to expand. Because once the welfare checks aren't coming in, you know, once the Medicaid and Medicare dry up, once the food stamps dry up, if we're in that kind of a disaster, once the local grocery stores don't have the food to spend the food stamps in, even if the food stamp card would work, hey, we got to take care of our own. And they're going to start taking care of their own by taking from the people around them that they've always seen themselves victims of. I'm not saying they are. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm telling you the psychology of human beings and how the interactions occur. Because perception doesn't matter. Reality is what it is when things really start to go bad. And that's what would occur in, in, in a hard enough situation. The next thing to do is look at the presence or lack of presence of government in your area. When I talk about government, I'm talking about authority. Military installations, police departments, size of the police department, size of the sheriff's department. How much resource do they have? And some people think, I want to be as far away from the government in a disaster as I can be. I understand. There are disasters where I feel the same way. Government is malicious, overreaching, and incompetent in many, many scenarios. But you know what? When you want to shut riots down, the National Guard does a damn good job of it. And they might be a little heavy-handed, but when a riot is going on and people are being killed, property is being destroyed, heavy-handed is what is necessary. So the government presence is a two-edged sword. An over-presence represents a greater target for terrorism. It creates a greater potential for oppression and control. But a complete lack of organization in a governmental structure represents a bad guy's you know, nirvana. Because there's no one to protect the people that can't protect themselves. Now, you might be able to protect yourself. But there's probably a lot of people around you that can't, especially if you're a suburban, urban person. Right? 
There's probably that old lady down the street. Maybe she could have protected herself 35 years ago. If you stay there and you grow old there, maybe you'll get to a point where you can't protect yourself as well as you used to be able to. <clears throat> All it takes, folks, young guys, I'm pretty young yet myself, but I'm feeling it a little bit, you know? I'm about to cross into that world of 40. You wake up and you walk away from your bed and you sound like you're walking on a bag of potato chips as your bones crack. You know, that's time telling you I'm here and I'm sliding to the, the, you know, the far edge of things and growing old has a lot going for it. It also has a lot going against it. And a lot of things you take for granted today you may not have available to you 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And the things that you don't care about today you may care about tomorrow. These are important things to ingrain in your psyche today because some people that will move away from the cities when they're young and live that homesteader lifestyle may choose when they're 80 to kind of move back in a little condo or a little neighborhood or something like that, be around people again in their twilight years, share things uh, that they've learned from life, and maybe they need to rely on people a little bit more. Sometimes it's hard to accept, but sooner or later, you know, that's just how age works. All these things need to be factored in when you're thinking about yourself and the others you care about in a disaster situation, especially in suburbia. Let's look at some rules for suburbia. Number one, I believe food storage is key. It's probably one of the biggest things that you can do to solve a lot of your problems, especially short-term problems, two- to three-week problems. You can probably uh, store enough food that that old lady on the street, you don't have to let her starve, you can feed her too, uh, especially if you store a lot of low-cost uh, high-energy, high-carbohydrate, high-calorie foods like beans and rice and pastas. And that allows you to be a good steward in your neighborhood if you're staying put because you may need those people that weren't prepared for security later on. So food storage is key both for yourself and having some surplus, especially, like I said now, if it's the end of the world as we know it, you may need to grab everything you can get and get the hell out. And you leave people behind, and that's sad, but hey, there's a reason we tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. And what happens in the end of the, the real story, we know what happens to grasshoppers. They end up, the cold winter comes, and they starve, and they die. And I would hate to have to do that, but it is a reality. But when it comes down to it, most of our disasters aren't that type. And overreacting to them makes you part of the problem versus part of the solution. Make sure that you are heavily stored up on food and water. I believe that you're, you know, if you get to 30 days, I'm happy for you. If you get to 90 days, you're in good shape. You're in great shape. But I believe your goal should be six months. And you're probably going to have to have two to three months of prepared foods to do that without losing food, having to give it away. If you want to give it away once a year or something like that, charitable, that's fine, you know. But if you really want to have it kind of rotated pantry and have that much sustenance, you're going to have to rely on at least some level of, you know, the mountain house provided pantry and things like that. You're just going to have to, MREs. Uh, but you can do also a lot of that with pasta, beans, and rice. Just learn ways to use this stuff, folks, you know. But heavy on food and water. Be prepared to get out because you may have no choice. That's, that's a big rule for suburbia. You have got to be prepared to get the hell out. Because somebody might show up and go, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, get your kids. You're coming with us. You're leaving. You better be prepared for that, too. Because you ain't staying when they tell you you're leaving. You can talk like a badass if you want to, and a lot of folks do. I see it. Oh, they ain't going to make me leave. Well, you know, um, 
if you're arrested, who's going to take care of your kids and your wife? And there are times when there may be mandatory evacuations. Hopefully, you were smart enough that that ever happens to you because you're already gone if that situation ever occurs. You have to understand that there are situations where no one should have to tell you to get the hell out. You should get out. When do you bug out? Basic rule, simple rule. Whenever, based on your assessment, you are more likely to survive if you leave than when you stay. When do you stay? Whenever, based on your assessment and all the knowledge you have available to you, you are more likely to survive if you stay than if you go. It always comes down to which way are you more likely to end up waking up tomorrow and still be breathing. It's cut and dry, and it's that easy. So you need to be prepared both to stay and to go. You need to have plans for both. That's a hard rule of suburban urban planning. You need to be prepared to defend what you have. Because you may not have a choice about staying either. It may be impossible, at least for some period of time, to get out. Everything may be clogged. You can't get out using that great truck that's all packed up and ready to roll if there's no room on the roads for the truck. So you may have to stay. So if you have to stay, you are going to be a target. Again, I hear a lot of nonsense from people, Jack, if you have that garden, you're a target. If you are breathing in this type of a disaster, you are a target. If you are surviving, you are a target. If you are known to exist, you are a target. If you are existing, you must have something to keep yourself alive with. Since we can only go a few days without food and water, without ending up you know, in a little heap on the ground and or dead, anybody that sees you and you're in relatively decent health knows that guy's got something. So I don't like to look at this as a, as a road warrior scenario and all this other high, you know Hollywood nonsense. I don't like to be a heartless person that says, you should have prepared, you did, I live, you die. But you do need to be realize that as nice a person as you are, as kind of a person as you might be, as much as you care about your fellow man, that your first duty is to your family. And you have a right and responsibility to survive. Because you have a right as a human to continue to exist. We have that inherent right. It's defended in our Constitution. By the way, that's what the Second Amendment is really about. It's not just about guns. It's about the right to exist and defend yourself and defend that right. It's about the right to self-defense, self-preservation. You have a right. Along with your right to survive comes a responsibility to see to the people that you care for and to see to your own needs. If you have a right to survive, you have a responsibility to make sure that you have the types of things we talk about. Food, water, and a means of defense. An ability to create fire, an ability to have energy. You don't get a right without a responsibility. That's something we've stopped teaching people in this country. It's very important that we understand that. Be prepared to defend what you have. In a disaster, help but don't coddle neighbors, especially during a major breakdown. What I mean by don't coddle is don't feed them three squares. You know, if you have some neighbors you want to help out a little bit, hey, you know, it's a gallon of beans, a bag of beans, a little bag of rice. This is all we can spare. I don't know how long it's going to take you. We don't have much, you know. Not, hey, come on over, move on in, because then you become the gravy train. And everybody in that neighborhood will be coming to you. Everybody. Some with malice and some just for a handout. And you cannot take care of everybody. That's why everybody should be doing a little bit to be prepared themselves. That's why I'm so passionate about spreading the word of preparation. If every household in America had at minimum 
30-day supply of food in their home. And that's not, those of you who have done it know, it is not that hard to have 30 days worth of food and drinking water. 30 days worth of bathing water and all that other stuff, that's tough. But 30 days worth of water to drink and 30 days, days worth of water to eat for your household, it's not convenient at first, but once you get it done, it doesn't really, it's no more difficult than anything else, right? that we do in our daily lives. And if everybody had that, we would skate through 99% of potential disasters. Because as long as the initial panic didn't occur, if everybody didn't freak out right at the height of the beginning of the disaster, the, the civil breakdown doesn't occur, and then we have time to use the resources. We're smart as a, as a species, folks. There are a lot of stupid people out there. There really are. I mean, you see dumb people all the time. But as a species, as a group, We're the smartest beings we know of, you know, at least in the physical world anyway. The smartest thing out there. We can fix problems as long as we don't lose sight of our own intelligence and the resources that we have, and as long as we don't turn on each other. Well, if we can get the majority of people into a state of 30 days worth of readiness, we're in great shape. A lot of the problems we talk about will never occur. Now, we'll never do it. We'll never get 100% on that. But I'm optimistic enough to believe that we can turn this country around and get 20% of us there. And the 20% of us can hold things together, not in a perfect utopia, but at least prevent the complete loss of everything. I think 10% can pull that off. I'm aiming for 20. I want 20% of America basically prepped for a month. That's my goal. I want you prepped for a month tomorrow because you know better. And it ain't that hard. Act as though your life depends upon it, because it might. The other thing is, and I'm pretty public with who I am and what I do, but I have to be. How can I get on the air and do a show every day like this and not say, "Hey, I'm Jack Spear." I'm not supposed to get on here and go and put, put like a, a you know a, a voice thing on there, like "Hello, this is Jack Spear. Go with the Survivor Podcast." You know, I am anonymous, and I cannot tell you who I am or where I'm from. You know, well, come on. You know, do you think anybody would listen to this show and take me seriously if I wasn't public? That doesn't mean that you should be. At least not overly public. You need to conceal what you have. And please don't centralize your storage. Make sure that there is food in multiple parts of your home. So that in a security situation, if you are ever breached, and the people that breach your security get away with something, they don't get away with everything. And they don't come away with the impression that there's more. You want them, if they do get anything, to go... You know, the only thing I really saw in there was what we took. These people don't really have much else. You don't want them coming back for more. And it's just basic redundancy. You know, if I want, I learned this in communications. If I have a business customer and he says this computer system cannot go down, then what I do is I run two pieces of infrastructure, let's say two pieces of cable to that computer, so that if one fails, the other one picks up. I plug them into two different uplinks on two different paths back to whatever other place it has to go. But the big thing I don't do, I don't run those two cables side by side right next to each other, you know, through, you know, through a ceiling or a floor or underground or anywhere. They take two entirely different paths because if they're in the same proximity to each other, and let's say it's an underground cable and a backhoe digs up the cable and cuts it in half. If they're in the same trench, they're both cut. My redundancy is now pointless. 
You have to practice that with your preps. Everything doesn't go in the same place. It's great to have a nice, well-organized pantry. I have one. I think you should have one, too. But your surplus food needs to go in multiple locations. And at the beginning of a disaster like this, you probably need to go into your pantry and take at least 50% of the food out and decentralize it throughout your structure. You cannot have things that you are dependent upon all in one place. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Two is one, one is none. You know all the sayings. Well, when it doesn't just help to have a lot of things. You have to not put them all at risk in the same proximity to each other. That is so important. I want you to also think a lot about hygiene, especially in a disease threat. And even where there isn't a disease threat, as soon as people become locked down and resources become scarce, disease becomes a problem. Nothing is more important than hygiene. It's getting rid of your waste. As disgusting as that is, we have to accept it. So chemical toilet supplies, you know, As basic as it is and as gross as it sounds, a toilet seat, a five-gallon bucket, a whole bunch of uh, the stuff that you dump, the chemical stuff you dump in an RV, and a bunch of garbage bags, hey, that may be what you're dependent upon. We learned yesterday that just with the electricity out, we could have sewers backing up everywhere. Some way to get rid of that stuff. Something I've never really thought of before. Not for just power outages. I've always known it's a problem with flooding and things like that because you get back pressure and things, but... Hey, all it takes is electricity going out, and all of a sudden we have raw sewage backing up into people's homes. And every time some clown dumps a five-gallon bucket of water in the back of his toilet to try to flush it, we make it worse. we got to think about hygiene. When I was interviewed for a couple different uh, media pieces I did, people always say, is there any kind of thing that you store that you know maybe is not normally thought of? And I'm like, I store extra deodorant, I store extra toothpaste, I store extra soap. You know, I have one radio DJ going like, well, I know where to come if I need a, a stick of right guard. You know, but then he, he was a good guy. And he's like, hey, well, you know, can you tell people why you do that? I'm like, well, imagine four adults in a home together on a, a 60-day quarantine. How much odor? How much cleanliness do you need? You know, having things like uh, antibacterial gels that you can use to keep chemical and biological contamination down without using water. These are all things that you really need to think about. And again, all of this stuff applies no matter, you know, I know we're talking about suburban and urban today. This applies to the farmer in Idaho too. It just applies more when you're in a suburban environment. Contamination, hygiene, all of these things are heightened. The more people you put into a place, the greater amount of waste, abuse, and, and resource taxation that you create, the greater the threat. You also have to understand that most disasters will be what we would call minor on a global scale. Even the big ones. If we look at, let's say, one of the big disasters that people think of that no one will stop talking about, and really we had things you know, like Ike and Andrew that were just as bad, but the one that got all the media coverage and everybody blamed the government for, Hurricane Katrina. Huge disaster. Thousands and thousands, millions of lives disrupted. Damage to the economy of the United States as a whole. New Orleans is the fifth, fifth largest port in the United States. right? So, I mean, massive amounts of damage on multiple levels, from acute localized damage to national level uh, disruptions. Do you know how big that was? If we really look at it on a global scale, when we talk about the ability of mankind to survive, it's nothing. Now, I know if, 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 if you might be offended right now if you were affected directly by this. I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying, was there any threat 
that we as a species or we as a nation would cease to exist because of something like Hurricane Katrina. The beauty of that, if there is any beauty of it, is that that means that in most disasters, eventually help is coming. And as long as we can make it through the initial disaster and the panic after the disaster, for a week to a month, in most situations, eventually help is coming. Order will be restored. We have to think survival in its true form. Just getting through another day, just getting through another day, and having a positive outlook, positive mental state throughout the whole thing. If we do that, again, 90%, 99% of what happens will not be Hollywood. Will not be the end of the United States or the end of the world as we know it. We have to be prepared for the 1% chance that it is the big one in some form. Pandemic, you know, natural, man-made, whatever it is. There is the chance, there is the potential. Electrical grid failure from one coast to the other. Those are possible. I don't ever want to, to come off saying that those things are completely impossible and to think about them, you're paranoid or nuts. I'm just saying that you do always have to realize that your order of priority is based on what's most probable. And what's most probable affect you tomorrow is losing your job or losing a member of your family. Those are the two disasters that sooner or later almost every single person comes into contact with. And we go up from there. So do your planning as always with the thoughts on the order of disaster probability with the concept of if we can make it, if we can hold it together for a month, in most situations that's going to be more than it's necessary. doesn't mean we're not prepared to go six. I don't want you to misunderstand that. But I also don't want you to be disturbed by what you've heard today, paranoid by what you've heard today, such a sense of urgency that it becomes self-defeating, overwhelmed. None of that stuff makes sense. The biggest uh, rule, though, and this is suburbia, the urban environment, way out in the middle of nowhere, have a plan. Have a plan now. Nothing is more important than a plan. Plan is more important than storing food. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to how are you going to ration it? If you do have to leave, how much can you actually take with you? How much do you have stored somewhere else where you might be going? You know, everybody's plan is going to be different. Everybody's plan is going to be based on the assessments that they've done that we've talked about today. You know, assessments like their life station. Your plan will change. Your plan when you're 35 is going to be different than your plan when you're 75. And only your youthful arrogance is going to tell you that I'll still be able, you know, when I'm 75, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be a mountain man still. Go find one. There's a few. There's few. They're the exception, not the rule, man. There's all this life ahead of you. 40 years of potential injury and illness and just the effects of time. Your plan will change based on your life station, based on your financial resources, based on everything in your life. But always have a plan. Always be adjusting the plan. If you do that, then when disaster hits, you know what to do. And that's more important than just what you have to pull it off with. Most people that end up in disaster situations, that end up in a really bad way, do it because they freeze, they panic. They actually have plenty of resources. The average household has, you know, you always hear these things from, uh, you know, disaster uh, salespeople. You know, all the people who want to sell you on uh, buying their version of a, a kit or whatever. The average American household has only three days worth of food in it. Where the hell do they get that number? Really? Where do they get that number? 
I, New York City, Manhattan, probably. We have people there that keep, you know, we talked about this before, sweaters in their freaking refrigerators. They use their refrigerators and their stoves to store clothing. They have no food. So I understand there's places where that's true. But if you go in the average American home, you don't think there's more than three days worth of food in there? Come on. The average American has about a week, a week or more worth of food just at any given time. If you count all the crap that they're eventually going to give to Goodwill, but they wouldn't if they needed it, you know, the stuff that's in the back of the pantry and all, most people could go a week or two. But what happens is they get into a panic because they have no plan. They don't even think they can go a day. They're freaking out because they can't go to McDonald's and get a pack of McNuggets, for God's sakes. There's one person that called 911 because he couldn't get McNuggets because they were out. That's the danger, is a lack of planning. So make sure that you're planning. Pull all these things together, but realize this above everything else, folks. And we're going to be okay. No matter how bad it gets, if we're prepared, we're going to be okay. Now, does that mean that none of us will ever get killed by a disaster? No. But we might get killed driving to work. As a people, as a group, we're going to make it. We're going to come out the other side stronger than we went in, no matter what the disaster ever is that we have to deal with. And we can live really damn good lives today without worrying about tomorrow, simply being prepared for it. We can actually live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. That's what this show's all about. So even though I talked about some dark things today, don't dwell on them. Be empowered. Understand your own power. What you have available to you. The difference that you can make for yourself. Assess your life honestly, but not in fear. Boldly. Make sure that you're prepared. Make sure you can go at least that 30 days. That's a, that's a minimum. You probably are closer than you think you are already. Have the redundancies in place you need. Remember, every time the lights goes off or the water goes off or anything happens where it's not a big deal, it's going to be back on in a day or two, don't suffer. Use it as an opportunity to assess yourself and reinforce and create new redundancies. Do that, man, and you're on your way. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares